Welcome to this Forthright Radio for August 12, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. In 2019, we interviewed Darja Mail when his book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, was published by the New Press. In addition to interviewing scientists from around the world, Dara consulted with indigenous people as well. He began investigating some of the cultural and spiritual dimensions of the climate crisis. After The End of Ice came out, he collaborated with our guest today on Forthright Radio, Indigenous Elder Stan Rushworth, in interviewing 11 Native women and 9 men from different generations and walks of life to solicit their perspectives. This collaboration has resulted in the book, We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth, also published by the New Press. Stan Rushworth was a tenured professor at Cabrillo College from 1992 till 2008, where he taught Native American literature and critical thinking. He is the author of three earlier books, Going to Water, The Journal of Beginning Rain, Sam Woods, American Healing, and Diaspora's Children. Stan and Dar told their interviewees, quote, Our focus is the disruption of Earth. How did we get here? How do we move on in the right way? What's in the way of that? And no matter the outcome, how do we carry ourselves? End of quote. We spoke with Stan Rushworth on August 3rd, 2022, via Skype. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Stan Rushworth. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Stan, in your book, We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth, which you co-edited with Darjamel, you wrote a beginning chapter titled Early Warnings. You note that one often hears things like, we've never been here before referring to the accelerating catastrophes from pandemics to climate disruption. And in this chapter, you remind us that, hey, wait a minute, there have been indigenous elders over the past 80 years or so warning of imminent danger and the imperative to return to right relationship with the earth and all beings. Would you please share with our listeners about the efforts of Hopi elder Thomas Benyakia, traditional Muscogee healer Philip Deere, Wolf Clan Mohawk elder Jake Swamp Tekaronianikin, and the Kogi people of Santa Marta Mountains of Northern Colombia? Well, I'll try to do that verbally. I think the chapter early mornings pulls it together pretty well. And I just want to mention before I dive into that a little bit, that this goes back even further. With COVID, I was talking with an elder about that, and he's in his 80s. And he said he was told a story when he was about 15 about this kind of thing happening when people forget the original instructions. And that from the story he was told, this is the fourth time that people have forgotten how to live in right relationship. And so when that happens, Earth steps up, the animals step up and make radical change. We actually came up with the idea or felt the necessity of doing this book based on exactly that phrase that you described there of people saying we've never been here before. 
And we heard that at a lot of presentations that DART was doing on the end of ice. And there was this kind of panic about it rather than a sense of urgency, more a sense of panic. And I was hearing things like, well, it's unconscionable to have children, this kind of thing. And the earth will be better off without us, these kinds of, of things. An elder who's come to my classes for years, Dr. Daryl Babe Wilson, always opened with a prayer in which he said, uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that exactly right, which means, we wonder we are your children. He was saying that to say that the earth is better off without humans is kind of like saying a mother is better off without her children, which is a pretty preposterous thing to say. So to briefly encapsulate, in 1948, I believe it was, the Hopi Council got together seeing what was happening on their lands and lands all, all over the world. And they put Thomas Banyakia on the path to tell the world what was going on. He did that consistently all his life. He did it around here where, where I live. He went to the United Nations. It took him four times of trying to get into the United Nations. And they finally just gave him a pulpit during a recess. So there weren't very many people to listen. Philip Deere, the same thing. In the 1960s, he went all over the place. Jake Swamp, same thing. He went all over the world planting trees, trying to raise awareness about what was going on. But unfortunately, people are, seem to be going too fast and have not really been listening, unfortunately. But that's why we wrote this book, because we have 20 people speaking very much in the spirit of those elders who have walked on now. The Kogi actually reached out to BBC, and they put out a movie called The Elder Brothers Warning, Message from the Heart of the World, that deals with this, because they, where they live in Colombia, they see Everything going from the Altiplano all the way down to the high mountains, all the way down to the sea, and they're watching it all disappear. So they continue to work today, working with as many different people as they can to put that message out. It seems to me that for each of these people, they were faced with a dominating culture that views significance, importance, power based on criteria that were just so at difference with the simple uh, the simplicity and truth and humility that each of these beings brought to their efforts and that that's one of the big problems that's one of the major culture clashes that has brought us here yes uh i'd like to kind of address the word simplicity, because the more I learn from my readings and listening to elders and different indigenous societies, I think the older folks, the indigenous societies are more in tune with the complexity of life. And so all decisions need to be made regarding the complexity of all the interrelationships between humans, non-humans, 
humans of all different stripes. And we seem to, in the modern world, seem to be more wrapped up in kind of a simplistic way of looking at the world. We have good and evil. We have my way or the highway. Uh, That kind of thing seems to be happening. Rather than building relationships, we seem to be, especially right now, in a phase of really camping off away from each other and not really realizing how deeply entwined we are and how it takes time and it takes effort to build relations, relationships and to recognize relationships that are that are already there. Is that, is that clear? What yes, I, and, and I think I thank you for that elaboration. I meant simplicity in the sense of just going back to first principles that you just elaborated very well. As I guess what I'm positing against is the tendency for the dominant culture to be distracted by other things besides right relationship and the essentials and the fundamentals. So I very much appreciate your adding on to what I was trying to say. Yeah, it's the it's the shiny stuff. I think a lot of people talk about it. Yeah. They're obsessed with the shiny stuff, but not really seeing the value of what's already here, that relationship is really, really the most important thing. Just as an example, more and more people are recognizing that climate catastrophes are occurring because of the accelerating use of fossil fuels. So it's relatively simple to say, well, we need to reduce using fossil fuels. But this becomes complicated because of the profits involved by certain people, of the ways in which so many individual lives are involved just to to get to work, for example, using a car. So that makes it complicated. But the actual problem has a simple solution. Stop putting the carbons into the atmosphere. But anyway, that's not what your book is about. That's just what it made me bounce off on. So let's get back to the book. I think it's important to briefly talk about your process in creating the book, We Are the Middle of Forever. That title is a line from John Trudell, one of my all-time heroes. I like it because he's not saying we are in the middle of forever. We actually are the middle of forever. And that implies, again, coming back to relationship, it implies responsibility. And in teaching Native American literature for the last 30 plus years, I've had the wonderful opportunity to have a lot of folks come to my classes and speak, a lot of elders and young people as well from all different tribal backgrounds and cultural backgrounds, indigenous cultural backgrounds. And it just struck me when hearing people say, oh, you've never been here before, that it's like Greg Castro, who's a Salinan Ramatouche Ohlone man that comes to my classes. And he says, do you know, and this is just straight up fact, California Indians had a 95% decimation going on in the latter part of, of the 19th century. And 
he says, if our elders can still be here, if our elders can survive that, we can certainly survive this. So the whole question of we've never been here before, this is a radical alteration of life as we know it, you know, you have to talk to an American Indian about that. The amount of death, the amount of cultural destruction, the amount of destruction of land, all of that is something that the American educational system really doesn't deal with. So it's no surprise that people say we've never been here before because they're not even looking at 100 years ago of the experience of indigenous people here, which is pretty irresponsible, in my view, to that relationship. A lot of folks in the book talk about how important it is to really perceive all that, to see how we got here. And part of that is looking at the genocide. Part of that is also looking at why we don't talk about the genocide and how that fits into climate, how that fits into social justice issues, how that fits into, as Dr. Kyle White talks about in his chapter, our concepts of time, you know, of being on clock time rather than deep time. And so the book really covers a lot of different material from philosophical perspectives to very, very emotional, psychological perspectives. As Raquel Ramirez talks about how the genocide affects everyone. It affects the descendants of the perpetrators as well as the descendants of the quote-unquote victims, okay? And that it's something that everybody carries. And if we don't unpack that in the vernacular, if we don't really look at that, then we continue to go on forward based on what she calls deep personal wounds, and the great writer Leslie Marmon Silko talks about that too, I think, in how desecration of oneself, desecration of another person, desecration of land all fit together and they create a mindset of desecration where desecration is an accepted modus operandi. And uh, that's what we're dealing with here. So how we solve those issues requires, I think, a whole lot of courage and a whole lot of straight talking. And that's what the process of this book is. And I, I have to say that most of the people in the book came to us through friendship. Uh, well, all of them actually came through already existing relationships either direct relationships between Dar and some of the participants or myself and the participants or recommended by friends. So there's no one just out of the blue, right? And in that, I think the book really reflects a very positive offering to its readers. It's a very solution-oriented book on many levels. Some of the material might be difficult to read, and to think about, some would be will be very challenging, but overall, the book is a process of interrelationship in a very, very positive way. 
back to what Greg Castro was saying about 90 plus percent of the population died in just a very short period of time. He was speaking of the California indigenous population, but numerous interviewees brought up that percentage elsewhere on Turtle Island. And I was struck, having just read your book, by a recent New York Times obituary for James Lovelock. He died on July 26, 2022, on his 103rd birthday. And although it was by no means his only or even perhaps his greatest achievement, he's best known as the creator of the Gaia hypothesis, which posits that life on Earth is a self-regulating community of organisms interacting with each other and their surroundings. And he said just two years ago that the biosphere was in the last 1% of its life. Quote, he expressed a pessimistic view of global climate change and man's ability to prevent an environmental catastrophe that would kill billions of people. The reason is we would not find enough food unless we synthesized it. And because of this, the cull during this century is going to be huge, up to 90%. The number of people remaining at the end of the century will probably be a billion or less. It has happened before. Between the Ice Ages, there were bottlenecks when there were only 2,000 people left, and it's happening again. That's the end of that quote. And several people throughout the book bring up that we are not living in the first world. This is the fourth, or sometimes people say the fifth world. Would you very briefly just talk about that concept that seems to be among numerous of the tribes on Turtle Island? I would refer readers to Lila June Johnston talking about that. And, of course, Thomas Bonyaka talking about it in the early warnings chapter. Yes, and back to my elder friend describing what COVID was all about and how he heard that story. He's Again, he's in his 80s, and he heard it when he was about 15 and was told that it was a very old story, that this is the fourth time that this has happened. And he's not hoping, nor is he today. So <laughs> I think we have to listen to these things. And listening to what you just read, it, it, I'd, like, I'd like to read something from Natalie Diaz's chapter in response to that. Back to the process, we asked four basic questions, but we gave total free reign and tried to stay to the oral traditions as much as we possibly could. We did usually an hour and a half or so on Skype, recorded them, and we let people go wherever they felt they needed to go in terms of what was related to the climate catastrophe or the climate crisis. So the four questions we said, how do we get here? How do we move on in the best way possible? What's in the way of us moving on in the best way possible? And no matter the outcome, how do we comport ourselves? This seems very, very important because we do have obligations to the children to do the best we can, also not to create so much fear and so much panic that we make it worse than it already is. I'd like to read what Natalie says. I was really struck by your phrase, no matter the outcome. I am struck by the insistence 
that these things are a part of the state of the climate right now. I don't believe this is us having control over the land. This is the land telling us it's tired. It's tired of sustaining us when we can't reciprocate the relationship that I believe was set out for us. I don't have the articulation yet, but I do think there's something about when we do acknowledge what we've done or even acknowledge our refusal to acknowledge what we've done, it's still such a dominion, right? Like we're holding dominion over the land and we will direct it. We're definitely a part of the momentum of what's happening to water, to earth, to climate. Yet this is also very much the earth telling us it's exhausted. It's ready to start cleaning itself. It's ready to move on to its next iteration. And on the next page, she says, how did we get here? How do we move on and respond? What's getting in the way of that? If there's a quick answer to these, it's that humanity is a small part of this much larger thing. And we must get back to being in relationship to the land and water. What might humanity be if it could be back in relationship? It's the large question of the ways we try to push ourselves through a day to be who we are, to say, because I'm a poet, this can be who I am in a day, or this is how I might treat someone, or this is what I might always be intentional about or central to in language when I speak to my mother or my lover or my friend or a stranger. So I think those are the small ways, or how do I visit my water, and then how do I use it in a day, and how do we work in the garden? Then we have the larger world that is not asking that question, no matter the outcome. Really, to respond to what that gentleman was saying, I look at what Karina Gould is doing up in Oakland, Lisa John, and how much positive change that she is making through creating relationships, not being in power over or, or uh, any other group, but really in developing relationships that I've observed her doing over the last 30 years, and how much good is coming out of that. So this is what I see around me. And I don't know about those figures that he is putting out there. And I don't know what the impact of those figures does. Does it create a feeling that, like Greg talks about, we, we can deal with this? We don't know the outcome, but there's an urgency to deal with it. And for me, when I listen to those figures, it's kind of more of what I would call a panic orientation. Whether it's true or not, I really don't know. But I think it's really important to focus very deeply on what we need to do and what we can do each day. And I think this is a, a lot of what everybody in the book is talking about. We look at the Honorable Ron W. Good of the North Fork Mono, and he's in the process and has been for decades of restoring meadows in the Sierras. The concepts that came here with the newcomers were that nature is to be left alone. It's pristine, right, without humans. Well, this is a pretty negative attitude towards humans. Ron goes in with his workers, his folks, 
And through their science, through their technology, they know which plants to take out of overgrown meadows because of their root structures. They're sucking all the water out of the meadows and therefore out of the streams, which changes all the wildlife in that area and pretty much dries up the meadows. So they pull out these plants and over a period of time, the water is able to stay in the soil. It therefore goes into the streams. When the streams start flowing, the fish come back, all the wildlife comes back from insects. These are on-the-ground technologies that are ancient that are being rediscovered now and taught. Ron teaches people from Cal Fire, California Fire Departments, how to do cultural burns and control burns. So I don't know what to do with those the figures, but I do know what to do with the material that I get from Ron Good and Karina Gould and you know, all these other folks. I wondered if you could talk about Lila June Johnson's working. Her chapter is called Trust. She's Dene, and she also speaks to the destruction and rebirth of worlds before this one, but she speaks of the agency of the people to simply walk away from what they saw as dead ends. For example, she speaks of the culture around Chaco Canyon and the culture around the Maya civilization. And Western archaeologists tend to posit that there was some sort of collapse and that the cultures were destroyed. But that's not her approach. She says they just walked away from what had been Chaco Canyon, and the Maya walked away from these monumental cultures, but they continued their cultures in a different way. I lived in Guatemala in the 1970s for five, six years, and I was discussing this with an older Mayan woman, because when I got there, I was surprised to find a country full of Mayans because I grew up in the educational system in the 1950s where we were taught the Mayans disappeared. So I got off the bus and went, oh my gosh, nobody disappeared. (laughs) Everybody's still here. So we had some very humorous moments about that. But as I got to know this older woman, we talked about this very thing. And she said, yeah, they don't understand. She said, we just walked away because it wasn't working. And Lila June kind of talks about it in terms of hierarchy. And I think walking away from hierarchy, and the way I'm using it may seem like an oversimplification, but I think it's important to address. Dr. Kyle White talks about walking away from fossil fuels, and he mentions coal. And people say, well, we've got to get rid of coal because of what's doing for, for the atmosphere. But what's missing in that is that one of the first conversations that needs to happen is with the coal miners. And they have to be included in that right from the start. And I'm saying that this has to do with hierarchy because I would suspect that people don't think of that. They don't think, oh, well, we need to sit down and talk with these folks that are in and out of those mines every day and ask them, how do we do this? Again, it comes back to relationships. I see that people in power, either through thinking, oh, well, I have the right way, are going to impose that 
on everybody without really sitting down to talk closely with everybody who's involved. And I think this takes time. It takes time. And and it takes as intentionality, as Natalie says, in terms of how we move in the garden. And, And in a sense, you know, the garden is our interrelationships with all those people and cultures around us. So those conversations have to be happening now. They can't be isolated by one group that thinks they have the the key. Otherwise, we end up doing biotechnology and things like that that can harm a, a whole lot of people. And by people, I don't necessarily only mean human people, but can do a lot of harm to everything. In your interview with Dr. Kyle Powers-White, and that chapter was called Kinship, you mentioned time, and he talked about the difference between panic and urgency. And a lot of that has to do with concepts of time. He talks about the damage that living in clock time does to our psyches, for one thing, and our ability to solve issues. But then he talks about deep time, kinship time, seasonal time, and planning for the seventh generation and beyond. Could you expand on that, please, Stan Rushworth? Uh, No better than Kyle did, that's for sure. (laughs) I have learned so much through writing up that chapter and through working with Dr. White in that write-up. And I really think that what he is saying is absolutely crucial. You know, in the beginning of the chapter, it says kinship refers to relationships of mutual responsibility where we care for each other and we create bonds with each other that make it so that regardless of what the law says and regardless of how severe a problem is or regardless of what our rights are, we have an abiding sense that we need to care for others. Now, when he applies that to his notion of deep time, as I understand it, he's talking about measuring time in terms of relationships, when relationships are functioning, when relationships are not functioning. It's a whole different way to look at it. And I can't put my words explaining, Kyle's, because it's so brilliant. So I would just encourage people to really read it and try to understand it themselves, because I think it's tremendously valuable. For me personally, my sense of a larger concept of time or of deep time is a very emotional, almost visceral thing, where you are aware, as many, many uh, indigenous cultures talk about seven generations, where you make a decision today, and in that decision, you're, you're listening to the seven generations before, to the ancestors that made it possible for you to be here today making that decision. And you also listen to the children's 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 seven generations into the future, and you make a, a, a decision that's responsible both seven generations back and seven generations forward. And to me, this is what Trudell's talking about when he says we are the middle of forever. That makes a real clear connection there. So the sense of responsibility and the sense coming back to the complexity, the sense of complexity of life is huge when you consider time that way. And you don't make decisions, bam, 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 that you might not be able to deal with. 
Years ago, I had a friend who was one of the first engineers in nuclear power plants. And one night he was very upset. And he explained to me that he felt like his life work was for naught because he had believed in nuclear power and it being clean and all. And then the issue of the spent fuel rods came up. And he realized that they made a decision to deal with the problems of containing those down the line in the belief that they would have the technology to contain them. And in his lifetime, they never got that technology to contain them. And so he said, we crossed a bridge that we shouldn't have crossed. So that, to me, relates very directly to that sense of time. He was segmenting a decision and saying, well, we'll get there someday. But it wasn't there. They weren't there that day. They made that decision to create a tremendously toxic thing onto the earth. And that was his viewpoint. He was very upset with himself about that. So to me, all these things kind of dovetail together. And it comes back to being responsible across huge swaths of time. This comes back again to addressing the genocide here, the, the desecration, to addressing the mindsets that create that. Hilarion Merculia points out some Yupik elders describing the civilization as being a reverse civilization or inside-out civilization because, and I'm paraphrasing here, in this civilization, uh, the mind tells the heart what to feel, but the heart should be telling the mind what to think. So we've kind of got it backwards. And how we conceive of time is part of that whole process. It brings up the different cultures of what we call North and South America and their sense of time, for the most part. We have to avoid speaking as if all of these hundreds and hundreds of cultures are some sort of monolithic, unified thing. I, I acknowledge that they're not. On the other hand, they had things in common, and one of them was this deep sense of time. And here we are with the dominant civilization of of the United States of America. And if we think of time at all, we imagine that, you know, we've been here a long time and actually 1776 is not that far away when you consider 15,000, 20,000. The archaeologists have to keep going farther and farther back of the presence of the indigenous people in this land. That has a bearing on how we make decisions. So that brings us to the interview with Edgar Ibarra. And he points out, for example, around the issues of the borders, which is such a big political deal now. The borders are just so recent. And the idea that human beings can be illegal if they cross a line and all that sort of stuff. And his chapter is on healing. And let us now turn our attentions to healing and Edgar Ibarra's work. Would you share with our listeners about that? Oh, Edgar's great. <laughs> As he points out in the chapter, he grew up right down the road from where I'm sitting here now, Watsonville, California. And he grew up swimming in the Pajaro River here, which, of course, is completely polluted by runoff from the strawberry fields, where we are here is kind of an agricultural center of the country and the Salinas Valley here. 
And so consequently, he got all those pesticides into his system. Being the child of people working in the fields, he addresses all of that who are constantly beset with that thing. They're also beset with the racism that goes along with being in the agricultural working class, the field workers, All of that, you know, being profiled by the police when he's like 11 or something like this and having to take his shirt off at 11, like get get off his bicycle and take his shirt off to prove that he didn't have gang tattoos and all. And he ended up incarcerated. And in that time of incarceration, he was brought into his native ways. And as he says in the chapter, Going back to these traditional ways is how we will reclaim our neighborhoods. And that's what his work is. He works with a group called Milpa of California. They teach young kids traditional life ways through a ceremony, through what people call sweat lodge, through palabras, which are meetings where everybody tells their life story. And building community, building community, that's what Edgar is all about. And he learned that from a a Miwok elder while he was in prison who said to him, Uh, What are you doing in here? You're an Indian. You're not supposed to be in here. And Edgar said, no, I'm Mexican, you know. And Uncle Dennis said, well, you better call your mom and ask about that. So next time he had a call out, he asked his mom and sure enough, found out that he's indigenous. And so that whole journey for him brought him into a wonderful place. And he just graduated from University of California, Davis in communication. He's very, very active in this community, great speaker, and just a wonderful guy. And the influence that he has on young people and formerly incarcerated people is really indicative of what his whole organization is doing. I met him when he was in a critical thinking class of mine at the college where I was teaching. We've held a really good friendship ever since. I got a kick out of the way he interviews young interns for this organization he created, (laughs) Milpa. He says, tell me about your mom. And the kid will say, my mom, what's that got to do with it? And he says... Bring in your mom. You know, we don't need your curriculum vitae. I'll know whether you're for this organization dependent on how your mom is. <laughs> so That's right. And that comes right back to, you know, the whole concept of relationships that we've been talking about throughout here. Glad you brought him up. Although it wasn't a big part of the book, numerous of the people you interviewed made reference to things like soul wounds and pointing out to people of European descent what most of us are not aware of. I certainly wasn't until I learned of it from John Trudell. And that is what had happened to the tribes of Europe that created them into the people that were able to then migrate to this land and commit genocide. And I wonder if you want to briefly speak about that history. 
Well, I'm not an expert on that history, but it's been told to me by numerous people. And since my wife is German and I've been spending a lot of time in Germany, Austria, Switzerland over the last 30 years, I have a sense of it. And I've been in villages up in the high country in Austria and Alps, where you get a sense, uh, for especially I'm thinking of one older woman who made butter, and she she was so deeply respected by everyone in the village. You very much got a sense of a very, very, very old way in which women were center. It's a lot of my friends in the Native community here put it, women bring life. And so women need to be at center. I think a lot of California Indian tribes had women leaders. Even uh, I think the Chiricahua Apache had women leaders before the Spanish came, or women spokespeople before the Spanish came. So that whole kind of male-dominant hierarchy kind of thing. My sense is that it spread, of course, with the Roman Church. Jack D. Forbes talks about it happening even before that. He talks about it as the wetico disease of, I think he calls it exploitation, greed, and power, and how that destroyed the gynocentric societies and Again, not archies, not over, you know, women over, but women in balance with men. Terry Delahanty talks a lot about this in her chapter, The Divine Feminine, the Divine Masculine Working Together. Lila June addresses it in a lot of her spoken word pieces that you can find on the net a balance between male and female. And coming back to balance, Shannon Rivers, who's an Akimel Otom man in the book, and he does sweats in prisons. Terry Delianti does sweats in prisons in back east. Shannon does out here. And he talks very much about balance, too. So that imbalance, according to Jack Forbes, happened maybe 4,000 years ago. The Roman church is not that far back. But yeah, we're definitely out of balance. There's no question about that. And also, Stephen Pratt, Ama Mutsen, he, you brought him up earlier about returning to fire and fire being an important element in our relationship to the land. He talks about the importance of echo suffering. He says you have to make the choice of allowing yourself to really feel what is happening now. We tend to protect ourselves, as I was saying before, we seek distractions And I was wondering if you would expand on that, on vulnerability, being open. Stephen talks a lot about that, as does Raquel Ramirez. And it kind of goes back to what that gentleman was saying in that obit that you read. It's difficult to hear those things, you know. It's very difficult for people in this society to admit to a genocide. Again, that level of of desecration, because that's not part of the narrative. And in that, you know, Raquel puts it this way. She says, we experience the most amount of growth if we allow ourselves to reflect. 
and we can start reconstructing for generations of Europeans not to reflect and reconstruct. They're not participating in the cycle of human experience. She maintains that they're not reflecting breaks the cycle. And she says the genocide hurts the heart of the perpetrators as well because it's such a stark contrast to who we are as human beings, inherently collaborative, inherently community focused. And for you to kill people, that's a wound on your heart. And so they have that generational wound as well. They carry the generational wound of genocide as well. And by not reflecting on that and by not growing from that, they're stagnant. And I think this is what Stephen is talking about as well. And he's talking about his own personal process through being an environmental science major and seeing all the stuff that's going on and really having to open up and go, wow, this hurts. This is painful. And not to be afraid of that pain. Okay, and Raquel talks about that, too. She says, I'm paraphrasing her, but she says, as a young indigenous woman, she was 18 when we interviewed her two years ago. I've never had the choice not to reflect on all of this. And so maybe what Stephen is getting at here is that if we really allow ourselves to feel the enormity of these changes, again, of Earth, as Natalie says, of Earth saying enough, then if we don't allow that, we're not really being fully human. Vulnerability is part of being fully human. Everybody in any relationship that's going to last more than a week will tell you that, right? You have to put your feelings out there and you have to start by putting them out to yourselves. How do I really feel about this that's going on? Then you can come into making choices toward in a relationship rather than isolating yourself off from that level or that depth of feeling. And Stan Rushworth, the final chapter is medicine. And I wonder if you would share with our listeners the birth prayer to the rising sun. Yeah, that's a beautiful prayer. It's a, that's a beautiful way to start life, right? He says, let me start with this. In the beginning, we knew when a child is born, there was the introduction to the first sunrise. The elders, and usually back then it was the grandmothers, would take the child outdoors. And as the sun was coming up, they'd hold the child to the sun to get the power of life. The sun is life, and the words spoken roughly are, there is no power in the universe that is greater than you. There is no power in the universe that is lesser than you. You are one with all things. That's a birth prayer, but I think it's a good prayer for each of us every day. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Daryl Babe Wilson said, when asked, how do we solve this? He said, it will be solved when the children wake every morning and sing the sun up. Stan Rushworth, a final words for our listeners before we have to say goodbye. Well, Please read this book. It's written in friendship. It's taught me. I'm an old guy at 79. This book has taught me an incredible lot of how to deal with everything that's going on in the world right now with little ones, with old ones, with all of life. So 
I hope you enjoy it. It's offered in friendship. It's offered as a way to give people a broad set of tools for dealing with what's happening. So thank you very much for listening. And thank you, Joy, for this talk. Well, Stan Rushworth, thank you and Darjamel for bringing these voices to us in your book, We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth. We thank you very much. Thank you. You have just heard an interview with Stan Rushworth about the book he co-edited with Darjamel. We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth, published by the New Press. After we had thought we had ended this interview, this short conversation took place, which we now share. And I very much appreciated your take on my use of the word simplicity. Words are just, they can be medicine, poison, confusion. That's one of the tricks of radio. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the reasons I address that is because in my classes, people very often say, well, the the Indians had a simple way of life and we can never go back to that. But if you really examine, say, a book like Water Lily by Elicara Deloria, which was written in the 1930s, and it's about pre-contact Dakota life, wonderful, wonderful book, you really are struck by the complexity of Native life. And I was trying to get at that. Really, what we live now is far more simple. We're separated from the natural world, and we're separated from each other. And that book, Water Lily, points out that we're really, really deeply interrelated to everything. So I jumped on that because I think it's a concept, that it's a word that holds people away from seeing where we need to be and need to go. I also share your feelings when people imply that we are either more knowledgeable or more intelligent than quote-unquote cavemen were. And, And I'm like, do you have any idea what kind of knowledge was required to survive, which plants you could eat, which couldn't, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's quite a bit of scholarship both here in California and now through a guy named Bruce Pascoe down in Australia, you know, where they're looking at you know, early Spanish folks coming in and down there early British soldiers and stuff coming in. And they're saying we came across a huge valley completely full of native agriculture with great numbers of people, huge flocks of birds, huge herds of deer. And in Australia, fish gathering technologies, plant technologies. One guy said, I ate the most delicious piece of cake that I've ever eaten in my life. And this is one of the first British soldiers to go into Australia. And he's being fed that by Aboriginal people. They discovered flour grinding tools 40,000 years old. So they've been baking cakes for 40,000 years and delicious cake at that. And it's the same thing here in California. The technologies here, we've been here since the dawn of time. You figure out how to live here in a good way. And there are far greater numbers. You talk to the elders, they say every square inch of Turtle Island was accounted for. So these tropes of vast uncharted wilderness Those are all colonial ideologies that suit the needs of the colonizer. That's just wrong. So we have to erode that everywhere we can, I think. 
The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. The title of Stan Rushworth and Dar Jamil's book is from a poem by John Trudell, The Cleansing, from his first album, Red Earth Song. You can find links to this poem and many other links pertinent to this interview at our website, forthright.media. However, we will end today's Forthright Radio with We Are Shapes of the Earth, from John Trudell's final album, DNA, Descendant, Now Ancestor. I want to talk a little bit about who we are, because I think the coherency of our future depends upon us knowing who we are, and I mean truly understanding who we are, because our relationship to reality and our relationship to power is based upon that understanding. But sometimes I feel like I'm in a reality where we don't remember who we are, so therefore we don't know who we are. We speak a language we don't understand, and because of this we don't know where we are. And I think that we live in a technologic reality, that these conditions are the result of a mining process. I'm going to call it a mining process. And there's a reason we are in this situation. But it's got to do with being fed upon by a system. So I want to go to who we are. See, we're the human beings. And it's very important because we all know how to say the words. We know the terms. I know we know the terms because they taught them to us. They programmed this to us. And the, 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 the words, human beings. But our relationship to reality is in that definition. So human, the bone, flesh, and blood, the DNA of the human, the bone, flesh, and blood is literally made up of the metals, minerals, and liquids of the earth. So we are parts of the earth. We are shapes of the earth. We're forms of the earth. This is the form that we are. All of the things of the earth have the same DNA as the human does. Everything of the earth has the same DNA as the human. Everything is made up of the metals, minerals, and liquids of the earth, but the shape is just different. And the purpose is different. And being, we have being. That's our essence. That's our spirit. And all of the things of the earth have the same DNA as the human has, so all the things of the earth have being. Spirit. And our relationship to power and reality is in that understanding of who we are. We are forms of the earth, and that's reality. Nothing will ever change that reality. What has changed is our perceptual relationship to reality. And what has happened to us through the millennium and through this whole technologic perception of reality, what has happened to the human beings is I... To me, it's like a disease in one way. It's like this thing just kind of spreads. And as it diseases the spirit of the people, it affects the perception of reality. So in one way, it's kind of like that. It's like a possession. But in another way, it's almost like a mechanical thing, this mining process that takes place. 
And it's almost like this thing that they call technologic civilization. See, it's predatory upon our lives. Anybody ever feel something's missing from their life? Like purpose or understanding or self-worth or self, whatever the deal is, they're mining us. <laughs> All right? They're mining us. And one of, the, one of the objectives of this whole technologic civilized perceptional reality has got to do with erasing the memories of the human beings. Because we have a common collective experience. We are all the descendants of tribes. Back in the time of the original dream, see, we were all tribes, and we were all the earth's children, and we all knew that the earth was our mother, and that we were a part of a spiritual reality, see, because we had being. We understood that there was a spiritual reality, and we were physical in a spiritual reality. We being who we are today, however we landed in this reality, whoever we are today, we carry the genetic experience of our lineage from the very beginning. It's encoded in the DNA. It's like a genetic memory. Something about the experience of the journey. We have it in us. It's like... But anyway, within our genetic memories, within our genetic memories, somewhere hidden in there, we all come from a people. Every one of us comes from a people that understood that we lived in a spiritual reality. And because we lived in a spiritual reality, every one of our beginning ancestral peoples understood that life was about responsibility. So we were responsible for the past and the future as well as the present. And we understood that all things had being. So we knew who we were, we understood what we were saying, and we knew where we were, we knew our purpose. And this reality lives in our genetic memory because, see, as human beings, whoever we are, the individuals we are now, that experience is there. It's at 90% of the brain to tell us we can't use. <laughs> so they're using it. 